Hello and welcome to SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today my guest is the educationalist, commentator and writer Calvin Robinson. Calvin and I talk about the role of rigour in education, the danger of identity politics sneaking into schools and the inflation of the university sector. Outside education, we discussed Calvin's work in the Defund the BBC campaign and how Britain should better respond to the pandemic. I hope you enjoy the show. So it's a pleasure to invite to SDP Talk a writer, social commentator and educationalist, Calvin Robinson. Welcome, Calvin. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So let's start off with education um, and in particular the cultural aspects of education. Uh, how important are the cultural aspects? And what I mean by that is things like rigour, um, high expectations, uh, good school uniform policy, things like that. How much, how, how important is that to outcomes? I think it's the most important, actually, funnily enough. Um, we've spent a lot of time over the last few years, uh, probably since 2014, when Gove really um, brought in his changes into education. We've spent a lot of time going over the academic excellence, which is very important in education, of course it is. Uh, but you can't access these fantastic curricula unless you have good behaviour and good standards in schools. And that's where we're struggling at the moment. I think the majority of our state schools in the UK are uh, poor as far as behaviour goes. And there are a shining light, um, about a handful of schools. I know you've spoken to Catherine Burblesing before. I'm a, I'm a governor at Michaela, that's one of them. But you know, there's Bedford Free School, Dixon's Trinity, um, there's, there's King Solomon Academy. There's very, very few schools that are getting this right at the moment. And that is why their results are excelling because you really have, to, I mean, you really have to hammer down on behavior, but it's not just about getting kids to behave. It's not just about good behavior versus bad behavior. It is a case of, you know, we're shaping the lives of young people in, in education. That's what we're doing in our schools. We're sending them out into the world with good grades, but we're forgetting about character. And to me, that's the most important part. You know, as a, as a Christian, it's, I want to send out good Christians, good members of society, um, not just people with A grades. Yeah, I think values really matter. I think a uh, criticism that we've made as a party um, on what you'd call sort of liberal left or progressive left is just a tendency always to, to blame what are culturally embedded problems on, on money, on, 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 on cuts. And, and we don't really see it like that. I mean, you know, obviously public expenditure is important and, and you need well-funded uh, public services and well-funded schools, but we've got to be honest about it. Cultural problems uh, need to be solved by cultural solutions. And I think that's, you know, so I think, yeah, I mean, it's great to hear that you, you, you're on the same side there. I think it's, it's everything. One um, policy that we've, we've plugged for a couple of years now is the, the Daily Mile policy, uh, which as you know, is a sort of, um, a voluntary thing isn't it where primary schools encourage the whole school to run a mile if they can you know it's, some schools can't do it um, but we see that as a, a sort of cultural um, solution to a, to, a, to, a, to a problem of, of kids you know a lot of kids are arriving at school unfit and, and too much weight and the boys can't concentrate on, on and so on and, and, and the daily miles policy where I mean it's 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 mostly cost-free and it's desk to desk and 25 minutes and we see that as a, a, a great uh, policy and I, I think every school should do it what's your take on that yeah I mean that's quite a liberal stance in that they have the choice whether to do it or not and I think that's the right approach 
um, we should be offering guidance and advice rather than dictates, which is which seems to be the uh, the way that the government's going at the moment. But absolutely, our kids need more exercise; they need more fresh air. It's this great shame that a lot of our inner city schools don't have open spaces. You know, I'm from the Midlands. We had we had lots of open space in our schools. We had cross country runs and all of that kind of thing. But they don't have that in in the cities. They don't have that here in London, and it's disappointing. But we have to make do. And um, it's important that kids get out and exercise. And we shouldn't be afraid of having these conversations either. You know, it's childhood obesity is a form of you know neglect at the end of the day um and we need to make sure that everyone's looking out for our children but i'm not saying it's all that responsibility falls on the schools either i think we often in these conversations forget the importance of, of parenting and first and foremost it's the parents role to uh, make sure their children are healthy and fit i think that's probably your your view there's probably a little bit different to us i'd say the sdp is a little bit more paternalistic there uh, i think we we have a slightly more um, uh, state-based uh, type of thinking, I think, and on, on the Daily Mile, I think we'd, we'd our current policy is actually to make it mandatory. And I'm fully aware that the when you make things mandatory, then you know it's like trying to trying to prop up the Welsh language or something. Or you know, the, people say it's bound to fail. But I think, from our point of view, I think what's frustrating is that government quite often is is prepared to sort of sit on its hands and let these things happen without. Um, having the sort of muscularity to intervene and, and try and change it yeah perhaps but it's it's the thin end of the wedge isn't it every time you make something mandatory you've got you know it's a there's a creep factor there of other things that are put on top and oh let's just address that as well oh and that as well and then but by the time you know it schools are juggling so many things we have so much to take care of already um the academic side of things takes a lot of time but the pastoral role in schools is already bloated and the social care aspect of it we can't perform all of the tasks that are expected of us at the moment and the more that we're having to manage the more likely it is for vulnerable children to fall through that gap again i take your point i mean i, I don't think um well i said you know uh, school quite often is there is the, is the best chance for some kids i think it's totally unreasonable to to to, to expect schools to to do the heavy lifting and pick up general social problems i think that's you know that I, I would take your point there i think it is parenting parenting and family actually which is is the key to that um let's move on to something which i think we probably agree with that uh, you've written a lot uh, in the telegraph and other places about uh the march of, of radical id politics uh into society but also into schools um what worries you most about that development oh i mean where to start i i think if we address black lives matter first and foremost because i think there that's more prevalent at the moment and i'm seeing it a lot i'm getting a lot of contact from parents from different schools and some of the senior leaders at schools that i consult in are very concerned at the moment because people are feeling like they've got to be seen to be doing something so schools have to address this global issue of black lives matter and everyone wants to be seen as progressive nobody wants to be against the anti-racists um, but at the same time the methodology that's being pushed on schools is critical race theory and it is this steeped in identity politics of breaking down everything into white and non-white or white and bme as it's as it's called uh, which is a term i don't tend to like because you can't group all ethnic minorities into one homogenous group it doesn't make any sense but the, just the whole idea that black kids are going to learn differently from white kids or that they have to be taught by a black teacher or that you know we need more black history on the curriculum that's a, that's a very common one and i don't know what that means because we teach british history we teach global history we teach current events and, and historic events 
we don't separate things on the curriculum based on skin color. It doesn't make any sense to me as an educationist. So a lot of these arguments are kind of just moot to begin with. It's challenging. But then when we are asked to teach CRT and we're asked to say, okay, talk about white privilege with your kids. And then there are little white children going home crying, thinking that they are racist somehow and they didn't know it because they've got unconscious bias. And then we've got non-white kids afraid of being friends with white kids now. And there weren't any issues there. There were very few issues in school with that kind of racism. We do have racism, absolutely. We have all kinds of bullying in schools because kids are kids. But generally speaking, racism isn't a major concern in English schools. Yeah, I think you, I mean, you've, you've said, you know, many a time in some of, some of your journalism that uh, it basically importing this stuff um, uh, introduces, stokes up problems that weren't there previously. That's the issue. No, absolutely. And I mean, Black Lives Matter is just the start of it, but identity politics in general, uh, you know, we're seeing, not, even, not just that, we're seeing kind of the whole, the whole gender issue. I don't know where your party falls on, on this, this line, but the whole idea that we should be teaching in primary schools that kids might not be in the right body. And we've got the government mandating RSE, um, RSHE, sorry, um, relationship and sexual education uh, policy but I mean we always used to teach sex education in school it's always been a thing in secondary schools but now it's getting pushed further and further down into primary so younger and younger children are learning about um, sex at a younger age but also it's a much wider field now so they're learning about LGBT issues they're learning about gender issues all of these things at such a young age that they shouldn't actually really be concerned with these things at that point what I what I worry about there Calvin is that the if you it's a it's a it exposes a, a division between SW1 and the elite and the bubble and the rest of society and I'll have parents uh, coming to me and saying you know I have an eight-year-old daughter I don't want her to go to school and for some uh, teacher or other person to suggest she's not a girl, she may be a boy. Uh, and I think that's entirely reasonable. Why, why should that happen? You know, and, and I think, no, we're, we're you know, very critical of that type of approach. I think the, what you're seeing is a, an over-politicization. I know in one of your pieces you were talking about whether you're questioning whether some of this, um, you know, the Chartered College of, of Teaching accepting uh, you know, the ideas of white privilege, uh, white power, critical race theory. Um, does that breach the 96 Education Act? Because it's quite political, and to say that it isn't um, is sort of missing the point. Absolutely, it does. All of this stuff does, but it's all very reactionary. Like the gender issues, the LGBT issues, the BLM issues, it's all very much, um, you know, it's superficial. They want to be seen to be doing something. So the Chartered College, the official body for teachers, as well as TES, the biggest, um, you know, Times Educational Supplement, the biggest resource site for teachers, are all pushing resources that are steeped in identity politics and critical race theory. But the problem I have with it is it, that it's unchallenged and unchallengeable, because if you raise an issue with it, you're automatically racist or homophobic. You can't have a reasonable conversation around it. And it is very political, you're right. It, I think it is falling foul of the 1996 Education Act but nobody has taken this issue to court under the act as far as I know yet. So that, that will be interesting. I mean, what we're trying to do, obviously, you know, things like Don't Divide Us is putting out resources that are alternatives. So, you know, it is important we talk about race relations and it is important that we look at racism and racial inequalities where they do exist, but in a reasonable, objective way uh, and not politically partisan. 
And that's what I'm trying to work on, put out resources there that people can use, schools can use to have these conversations without indoctrinating children. Yeah, I know. I think that's right. And, and obviously both of us were <clears throat> co-signatories to the Don't Divide Us letter in The Spectator. And I was very happy to do so. Um, I said at the time when I was speaking to Claire about it that I think it wouldn't surprise me if Don't Divide Us is, is the most important um, campaign, effectively, going forward. I think, that's, I think it's the most important thing. Because I think importing uh, US sort of hyper-racialism is the most divisive thing for our society. It's the worst thing uh, to come along. And um, Aris Rusinos actually commented quite, and I think he was right, that uh, to speak English, was it something, something to do with the English speaking nations particularly? I think it's been less, um, culturally, it's been less effective as an export from the United States to uh, say Italy or, or France or Portugal. But in the English speaking world, uh, to speak English is to be vulnerable to importing some of this um, politics, which is, I think, is a sort of form of dysfunctional politics. And, and I think, you know, we must resist it. It couldn't be more important, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's completely importing US drama. But, you know, whatever we see happening over there, we see it comes over here two weeks later. And, you know, their protests quickly turned into riots and they pr quickly became violent. And thankfully, we don't have gun, a gun culture over here, but it's turned to shootings over there now. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. Just to keep on that, on the, on the education uh, angle, um, looking at it, the, the impact of ID politics, I think it sort of pulls people in different ways, doesn't it? So um, some of it, some species of it from the States, uh, the problem is, is, is um, low expectations. So they divide everyone into little groups and then they have higher expectations for some groups than others. I think that's a danger, but also in this, in this society, I think if you look at it through um, a sort of hyper-racial lens, you're not, look, you're not being fair to some, some other areas, some groups that, that get overlooked. And I, I think white working class boys, there's, there doesn't appear to be anyone speaking up for them. Would you, would you think that's a fair appraisal? Absolutely. And this, this bigotry of low expectations comes from a good place. It really does. You know, the majority of teachers happen to be left leaning. Um, they're all from the, it's a, it is a massive group thing going on in education and they don't see it. So it's, it's, they don't challenge themselves because they're all on the same, same wavelength. They all think they're right, but they're coming at it from a good place in that they think, okay, that child is from a disadvantaged background. Um, so we won't set as high expectations for him as we will for everyone else. Or that child is from a ethnic minority background. So maybe they're not aware of our cultural, uh, whatever it is that we're expecting of them to sit still and be quiet or whatever. And it is, it is a bigotry of low expectations. It really is lowering the standards for those kids. But what we see is if you raise expectations for all children, they thrive. They, they rise to meet those expectations and they, they want to be challenged. And I think it's, it's really patronizing that we don't do that. But while we're doing this at the same time, while we're saying, okay, you're disadvantaged because you're black, so you don't have to do your homework or whatever, and that kid's going to get lower grades. While we're doing that, we're not addressing the real inequalities, which, as you mentioned, is white working-class boys. Um, there's probably one or maybe two parliamentarians that are speaking up for these kids at the moment, and they are the most disadvantaged in our schools, but it's a taboo subject, especially if you're white. Thankfully, I can discuss it a lot more than most people can, but if you say you want to speak up for white working-class kids, it's like, oh, obviously you're racist, you don't care about the BMEs. It's always either or. I think that's right, Colin. But on the data, if you look at the data, there are some pockets of uh, underachievement which are just so stubborn. And if you if you look at the data honestly, um, you'll see that something. I mean, some of these things should be addressed. I mean, where I'm speaking from in Northumberland, 
um, Southeast Northumberland, Ashingham Blythe. It's, educational achievement there is generational. I mean, it's and 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 actually, despite new labour and building some uh, quite nice new schools, we we remain we we are stuck in this uh, you know low achievement uh, trap really. Um, I mean, it's funny actually the new labour approach buying buying and building new schools usually on PFI um, proved one point, which is that actually. Uh, comfort levels in schools are not as important as leadership. You hit the nail on the head there when you mentioned data, because I've been right. I've been going through all of this data recently for a report that we released from Henry Jackson Society yesterday. And uh, black African kids are excelling in every aspect of education, through primary, through secondary. They're doing better than pretty much every other subgroup of ethnicity. Whereas white working class boys are significantly behind uh, pretty much everyone else other than black Caribbean. So it just but this is the thing, we're in a post-truth age. You can't, everyone's got these stats, the DFE releases them, ONS releases them, but we can't do anything with them because people don't want to hear it. So how do we get past that, that barrier of righteous ignorance? I think you're really onto something there. I think the, the um, uh, what you might call hate facts, uh, you know, I mean, if, if a fact is a fact and it doesn't fit a narrative, I mean, people have taken on some of these narratives really, really cheaply uh, without really thinking. Uh, and I, I was chatting to a friend recently and saying, well, do you, do you approve of the sort of racial favoritism that the, they operate in some US universities? So you'll, you'll be aware of the Harvard University um, uh, controversy between uh, Asian Americans and, and the rest. Um, and uh, there's no doubt that they're, they're practicing racial favoritism. I said, well, do you think we should do that here to get more? BAME students through, and he said yes. Well, I said, well, you'd have to reduce it actually if you're going to, because actually the white working class boys are underrepresented. So, would you be in favour of that? And there's silence. Exactly that. It, you've got more chance of getting to university if you are from an ethnic minority background than if you're a white working class kid uh, or a white British kid. And, and there's, like I say, the stats are out there, but people don't want to believe it or work on those stats because it's not about actually solving these problems it's about appearances it's about looking good and getting positive pr yeah and just being being taken in by a, a sort of wave of partly emotional um, you know emotion i think um coleman hughes I, I i really like some i mean i think it's worth looking into american writers on this because we are importing an american thing so um you know thomas Sowell's a, a bit older now but i think coleman hughes is excellent uh McWirt is excellent and i think if you read them you'll you'll um, find out what we're what we're going to face. I mean, now as we've talked about universities, one question, um, which I think is a relevant question: Do you think too many people go to university? Absolutely, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, I think this is one of the failures of Tony Blair's legacy in that he just wanted everyone to go to university. It doesn't make sense for everyone to go to university. A because we need more manual laborers, we need more skilled workers, we need people with um, non-academic backgrounds doing normal jobs that's a, that's a perfectly okay thing um, that we don't need to snare upon but also that the more people go to university the more fluffy made-up degrees we have you know things like gender studies that don't actually give people any real knowledge no real science behind it and they come out of it without any job prospects and I, I don't think university is a job factory i'm not utilitarian in that aspect i think knowledge is an end in and of itself but they're not even getting that from these courses <laughs> it's just completely pointless exercise and it costs a lot of money both our taxpayers money and their money because you know we're still subsidizing the prices of a university even though it's very expensive to go to university so we need more technical options um 
you know, Germany do it very well over there, don't they, for their secondary school technical options. We don't do that yet. We can do, you know, we've got the free school program. There's nothing stopping people setting up uh, technical schools. It's just that there is a stigma around it in this country. You know, there always has been. B-tech in schools now means rubbish. You know, kids will say, oh, you've got B-tech trainers or, you know, it means a rubbish version of something. That's how stigmatized it is. It's a real problem. Um, and I think we need to deal with it. We, uh, apart from anything else, I mean, the investment that's going into 40% plus going to university is not an investment that will that could possibly make a, a reasonable return. But I totally agree with you. Education uh, in and of itself is, is valuable. Um, but even if you looked at it as an investment, it's a terrible investment. It's really a Ponzi scheme. And a lot of these kids are getting ripped off, I think, by the universities. Um, and an adaptation, David Goodhart's very good on this, an adaptation towards technically-based, skills-based uh, training would, would, would be far, far better. I think there's also, to get it back to what we were saying before, I think there's also been um, uh, a political danger in this because uh, there's no doubt that overproduction of this type of elite, if you call it an elite, will cause disappointment because expectations will not be met. There's no way uh, you'll have 40% of the population going into higher managerial, well-paid jobs. There aren't as many, there aren't, um, the supply side won't, won't provide those. So do you, do you think there's a, a problem politically as well? You just, you, you, you're creating a, a pool of, um, uh, of people with degrees for which there's no option. Yeah. And I just, I just really think these degrees need something behind them. So the whole reason I became a teacher in the first place was, you know, I was in technology and I had people coming to me with great CVs, amazing uh, degrees on there, but they had no skills and no knowledge behind it. So I don't even know what's going on in the teaching. That's another aspect that we need to look into as well of our, of our education system all the way through university in that people are getting through with these degrees and not learning anything along the way. Standards have fallen, haven't they? And, and if you, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 55, so you're going back a fair way. Uh, but when I went to university, I think about 12% about of the population went. And on my degree, which is which is in urban planning in, in Birmingham, pre pretty much the best course in the in the country. None of us got firsts, none of us, not one of us. And I don't think it was because we were no good. I think they just pretty much didn't give firsts out now. And you look at the grade inflation, and the aspect of universities treating people like consumers. And I think it's it there needs to be a serious tilt uh, back a correction. And maybe do you think the pandemic might? Uh, do that job for universities. I mean, it's horrible to say that, but do you think that might happen? I think it will do, yeah, because uh, obviously after the, the grades scenario uh, that we had earlier this summer in that kids have been given grades based on teacher predictions and it's, it's very fluffy and they don't really mean much. Um, you know, we can, we can make a prediction, but it's just that it's a prediction. It doesn't mean that that's what the child would have gotten if they'd have had the opportunity to sit down and prove themselves and actually evidence all of their work. But because we've got so many high grades now, there has been like a 12% inflation uh, on A-levels, and I think it's double that on GCSEs, that universities have kind of, they're flooded, uh, especially the higher level universities. Uh, the Russell Group University is absolutely flooded with, um, they've had to accept so many students, that which means the lower ranking ones might be kind of flushed out. And I, I don't like, I don't, I think that's a thing that I wanted to see, but it might mean that some of the, um, less good universities that have all of these less useful courses do get flushed out there may be some consolidation perhaps that's the word we should use calvin i think i mean i think that's been overdue anyway and as i say i think the saddest thing um from for me looking at it is is when you 
you see kids getting huge amounts of debt, which is a legacy issue for them, um, whether or not they pay it back or whatever. I, I just think it's such a pity because that generation, previous generations, you know, obviously university education was rationed and, um, and the state supported people, uh, but people didn't end up with 40,000 pounds of debt that's gonna hang around. And that, that affects their whole um, life cycle. You know, it affects your the serviceability of, of buying a house and getting married and setting up and things. So that's with you. And I think, unless there's a very, very good reason, I just think it's been vastly overexpanded. I think probably for political reasons, and I agree. I think Blair made a terrible, terrible error there. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I think, I, I think it, will, um, it will adapt because of the crisis. Um, Calvin, can I move on now? There's one um, uh, campaign which you're involved in, which we're interested in, uh, which is defund the BBC. Can you tell us a little bit about that campaign? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a grassroots pressure campaign. So this is just ordinary folk on the ground who are sick and tired of the BBC for all kinds of reasons and want to see some change here. So our main, we have got three main aims at defund the BBC. We want to educate people on how they can um, get rid of their TV license and what they can still watch without one. Um, so there are, you can still have a TV without paying a license. We want to let people know that because people feel pressured into buying one, even when sometimes they don't need one. We want decriminalization of non-payment of the license fee because at the moment the magistrates courts are clogged up with people um, and they're kind of tar targeting the vulnerable and the elderly and women uh, disproportionately targeted through the criminalization of the license fee. So we want to get rid of that by the end of this year. And we want a commitment from the government to change the BBC's charter so that the BBC only covers BBC content. So right now, I have to pay the BBC for the privilege of watching ITV, Channel 4, Sky, um, all the hundreds of freeview channels, and that makes absolutely no sense. I think if it was an option to opt in to the BBC if I want to watch BBC content, then maybe I wouldn't have to um, pay for that TV license regardless of whether I use it or not. So there are, there are three main aims. What about the future of the BBC as an entity? What, what's your broad view on that? I mean, it's not up to, up to me to suggest what they're going to do in the future, but I think what we need to do is cut out um, the license fee, cut out the political bias that is steeped in their infrastructure, and perhaps the new director general might be able to help with that. Uh, he has hinted at wanting to address the issue, but then he's kind of already U-turned on it in, the, in that he said, you know, if you're working at the BBC, especially in BBC News, you shouldn't be tweeting political views. And then he said that the big dogs like Gary Lineker, actually, it's okay because you're a freelance. So it doesn't really balance out anyway. But where it goes as a, I don't know, because it used to be a public service, didn't it, the BBC? And that's why it was pretty much publicly funded. But I'm not sure they are anymore. I think they're competing with commercial outlets. And I think they've got a monopoly, um, a government-sanctioned monopoly, and they're taxing us uh, for the privilege of holding that monopoly. We need to open it up to the free markets. And I'm, I'm not sure what you'd fall on that one <laughs> no well i'll tell you i i'm very very happy that that you know organizations like your 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 organization is criticizing the bbc because they, are, they should be criticized i mean i think they're desperately biased uh the political bias is appalling and i think a lot of people mainstream citizens just wash their hands of it now and don't don't even expect um fair political reporting and that goes back a long way i my uh, we have we have probably about 10% of SDP members probably would say to get rid of it, you know, just, just pull the rug and don't have it. I don't agree with that because I think um, a national broadcaster, particularly the legacy of, you know, the quality of the BBC in history, um, a national broadcaster is part of our 
um, the nation state architecture, if you like, and it's culturally, I think it's, you know, it is important. And I think if you look at the best of the BBC, um, and I'm <laughs> maybe quite a small area now, Kelvin, but, the, but if you look at the best of it, um, there are certain things that I, I would be loath to lose, you know, just, just from a cultural point of view. Um, you know, I'm not just talking about shipping forecast and sort of world service and things. I mean, although the world service could be improved, certainly, um, you know, test match special, lots of other things, which people, it, it, a lot of it culturally um, is about being at home, feeling at home. And I think the BBC should be improved and saved, if you like. That's what I think. And we've we've argued for a Royal Commission on BBC bias, but we wanted to include Channel 4 in that because that's also publicly funded and is very, very biased. And uh, I think, so that's basically our policy. It's got to be able to uh, be redeemed. I hear you, but I'm just thinking like, you know, what do they do now? I know they used to have like, art they used to do a lot a lot for the arts they used to do a lot of nice documentaries that other stations just wouldn't touch because it wouldn't be commercially viable um you know like john benjamin on churches and things like that and uh the documentaries on trains and all kinds of really interesting stuff to inform and educate at the same time as entertaining uh, which was their remit but i'm not sure they do any of that anymore you know they're all reality tv and soap operas and everything that all the other stations do what what do you find special about them yeah no i agree with you and i agree and, and actually iplayer is full of stuff from the early well late 60s early 70s that just wonderful programs that only the bbc could have made um nan over britain and things like that absolutely phenomenal stuff so william could we just not open up the archive because we've all paid for that over the years yeah, but but I think they should just refocus. What I'm saying is, I still think it's 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 savable. I mean, I I think there's there's a very good case for getting rid of the uh, license fee. I don't think that's justified at all now. I mean, it's there's no point in having a license fee. I think it's probably overfunded anyway. Um, but the biggest problem, you know, that needs to be corrected urgently is the coverage bias. You know, it's 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 the it's it's what they choose to cover in news and how they cover it. That's the urgent thing. And you hope the new DG does something about it. But in a way, I, what I'm arguing for is what I was saying before about a sort of cultural solution to a cultural problem. I don't think it's, it's necessarily about mechanics of, I mean, these things are important, but it, it's not really about that. It's a cultural rot inside the organization full of uh, woke progressive liberals who don't know anyone else apart from woke progressive liberals. And I think I, where I would agree with the abolitionists, if we can't solve that in the next 10 years, then fine, it's game up. I think you and I would agree on a lot of things culturally in, in that we need to protect uh, British heritage. But I, the problem I have is that I don't think the BBC agrees with us anymore. And that's what they used to be there for. You know, they used to end their programmes with a national anthem and it used to be the British Broadcasting Company. And they've forgotten what that first B stands for. And then they are now steeped in, like you say, woke um, culture. And it is this identity politics stuff all over again that we talked about earlier you know with john amici talking about white privilege on bbc bite size for children uh and country life saying that the the countryside is a white environment and black people aren't feeling welcome and it's like where are you getting this from and who are you, who are you preaching it to that's 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 a real cultural problem and i i it is just goes back to viewpoint diversity and and i suppose it's downstream of what's been going on at the universities which you know they they they're they produce people having the same view. They may have different racial backgrounds, but they have the same view. And uh, until you can tackle that, I, well, I, I would totally agree. Unless you can solve that, then the game is up. And I think a lot the, 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 the mainstream 
majority of the country would say no just just pull the rug but it's not just the bbc i mean mainstream broadcasting generally your clip on on good morning britain uh recently i can't remember what you're talking about you and it was just it was just a pile on i mean i i i watched it and and uh, it's on youtube and and both presenters went at you and every other guest went at you yeah there's two guests two presenters and the weatherman chimed in and we're talking we're talking we're talking about black history on the curriculum and I'm the teacher on the panel and they don't want to hear my perspective because it's not the, the approved narrative. And that's the problem, isn't it? That they're not even talking about the news anymore. They're shaping the news or attempting to. And there's always a narrative or an agenda behind it. That's what I find offensive. You know, I was, I've invited onto that show four times. I've turned it down because um, I know what they're like. That's, they want someone on there to target and have a go at and be very woke and say, yeah, we're amazing. You guys are wrong. And it's not about having a conversation anymore. There's, there's no debates there. They're terrified of conversation, and, and I think the reason that they're terrified is that the, if you had a, a non-superficial, long-form conversation, they would lose the argument. That's, that's why they don't like it. Uh, but I, I, I raise that because it's not just the BBC. I think there's a problem across um, mainstream broadcast, actually, and that's, and that's why so many people have retreated, if you like, into, into podcasts and Trigger and people like this. And the, you know, but then the danger of that is that we're sort of speaking to ourselves. This is the problem, William. Like, the only radio I listen to now is talk radio, because I know I'll get some common sense on there. But at the same time, it's almost a bit of an echo chamber for me, because I'm hearing people that I agree with. Not all the time, but most of the time. I, I just want some balance on mainstream media. I love some balance. I don't mind hearing opposing views. I just don't want it all the time. And I don't want it with an agenda telling me that I'm wrong for not sharing those views. Yeah, and I think that's what that you could you could view it as another yet another Americanization of, of British politics because I, I occasionally go on Mike's show and talk and it and yeah I mean I suppose the listen the people that listen to it like hearing what we say but um, you, as you say it's 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 a bit like Fox News it's, you know, if we have to go there then everyone has their own echo chamber and there's no proper debate at all um, I don't know where we go with that I think I think. Um, it's, it's like many other things it's very hard to assemble once you've lost someone oh, absolutely and I think it's you know it is all media it's not just broadcast media in the in the print media this week we haven't seen many uh, papers or many outlets um, holding the government to account at all for that you know we're, we're having new laws put in place about how we can live our lives our day-to-day -day lives because I get there's a global pandemic but Whenever there is something big like this happening in the government, we should expect to see our media holding them to account. I've only seen the Telegraph doing that so far. No one's fighting for our civil liberties. Maybe they agree what the government's doing is right, but it's their job to challenge it regardless. The number of people, I mean, we take on, you know, on COVID and the government's reaction to it, we, I guess we take a sort of a, a, a middle view on it, I suppose. I'm, I think personally, I think the, the, the aggregate effects on health um, and deaths actually, uh, as a result of the lockdown, will fully exceed the deaths saved from it. That's only my my uh, estimate. That's my view. Um, I can understand why the government did the lockdown. I think most governments faced with two two committees arguing the point would would have would have accepted it. But I think put, I think the Swedish approach is a more humane uh, and a better approach. I think you want a society which is mature enough to take advice and uh, almost do a sort of voluntary uh, civil lockdown, you know, to be sensible. But what, I think when I hear uh, in serious newsprint uh, talk of a, 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 a curfew in a, in a free society, I'm very worried. Absolutely, it terrifies me. Um, I'm, I'm going to be doing more on this because I just think 
you know, the moment we give our civil liberties away, we never get them back. And it isn't tyranny that takes them away. It is things like this, national emergencies, and people voluntarily giving them up and saying, you know what, it doesn't affect me. I'm home by 10 p.m. anyway. I don't mind if there's a curfew. It's not a good place to be for a, for a liberal democracy. And, you know, as, as small C conservative as I am in my uh, cultural and social issues, when it comes to civil liberties, I will, you know, I'll die, live and die for those. I think it's, it's so important. No, it is. I, and also culturally, I think uh, you've maybe seen the clip of the, the, the chap on the train getting arrested um, for not putting a face mask on. I want to live in a society where if the government says wear a, wear a mask on a train or in a shop, most people agree voluntarily to do it. But if they don't, I don't want people arrested violently. I want, I want society to accept that they, they have taken a choice not to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and these marshals, you know, government paid snitches going around telling people how to live their lives. And, you know, an Englishman's home is his castle. I shouldn't be dictated by the government how many people I can invite around, uh, what time I can invite them around. And it's just stepping too far. It's overreach. It, it is. And I, I, hope, I hope that the, uh, the sort of British and English uh, sense of ridicule um, just maintains its position on this, because, uh, again, it's for us really to certain things you can do in a free society. I don't think you can have another full lockdown. That's, that's got to be taken off the table in my view. Um, and then again, the, the, the advice is quite contrary because they're trying to get the Pret office economy going. So they're trying, the government's trying to get it just right. They're saying, go back to work, go back to school, which is right. But then they're saying, um, by the way, we might uh, have another lockdown or put a curfew on or, or put more constraints on you. So uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I think, we should be more. We should be um, more willing to give um, choice to the to the citizenry. And actually, most people are communitarian, and most people would be sensible. Yeah, trust your citizens to get on with it and do the responsible thing. And we are communitarian, absolutely. As a, as a country, we are. And I think the Conservative Party has forgotten that. And I don't know what they are anymore because they haven't been conservative for a long time. They've been very liberal, but now they're not even, even liberal. So I, it's difficult for me to predict what they're going to do next. And that's what worries me as well, especially after I worked so hard to, to you know, help get them in. I, yeah, I, I, you have my sympathies. Um, uh, and I, I, I mean, it is Conservative Party in name only. It's, um, it's socially liberal and economically liberal and, uh, and it's too socially liberal and too economically liberal in our view. And um, I, I certainly the, the Social Democrats are more socially conservative than conservative party, but that's not very difficult. <laughs> Listen, it's been great speaking to you finally. Um, let's keep in touch um, and, and just take care and keep on, keep on trucking. An absolute pleasure, William. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of SDP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at sdp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.